You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This is truly a market where every dog has its day and where seemingly every theme from the last 20 years has gotten recycled amidst a very liquid public market environment. You know about SPACs, you probably know about the electric vehicles euphoria, and maybe you've clued in to the rare earths lurking behind those electric vehicles, or in them as it were. But do you remember Mollycorp? The descendant of the hot early 2010 stock that went bankrupt has come to public markets again as the flag bearer of the rare earth's revival in public markets, having gone public via SPAC in which, of course, Chamath Pelahaptia invested. This sector can be fairly technical and nuanced, and with the excitement building, we brought on an expert to guide us through the topic. Don Lay is Vice President of Corporate Development at Medallion Resources, a rare earth's technology company based in Canada and traded on Canadian public markets, and was previously CEO of the company until stepping down last year. So he has a lot of firsthand experience. Akram spent time on this from back in the Molly Corp days of yore, so he and Don go through the ins and outs of this story, including China's market position, the import of electrification in cars, and how MP Materials is back on the scene. I think you'll enjoy this if you like getting under the hood. I don't speak much on the episode, but I liked listening to it as we went through it. For disclosures, neither Akram or I have any positions in any stocks discussed, and Don has a short Tesla position, while of course being employed by Medallion Resources as well. So Don, welcome to the Razor's Edge. Good to have you on today. Thanks very much, Daniel. Good to be here. Thanks, Don. Thanks for, for joining us. A uh, little brief background, guys. Figured it'd be an interesting topic of discussion with uh, all the excitement around electronic vehicles and ESG investing lately. And uh, Tesla, of course, to have somebody on who I personally know is an old friend, former CEO of Medallion Resources, which is a, a rare earth. How do, you, how do you describe it, Don? We're in the rare earth technology business, uh, extraction of rare earths from byproduct material. Okay, so that's, but yes, we'll get into the details of rare earths in a second, but not digging it up out of the ground, but the key part of rare earths, the processing and refining of it. So figured Don would be a good person to talk to 
give us a little bit of his own insight in the space. It's also interesting that when when Don and I met, I had been shorting at the time Molly Corp, which was uh, the beginning of a rare earth mania, let's call it. <laughs> it's a, what would you describe it as back then? 2010, 2000, was yeah. it 10 or 12? Uh, it sort of started in late 09 and went through 12. And Molly Corp was the poster child for that rare earth bull market, if you will. Yes. So the we, we met we met back then and then the market kind of deflated and we stayed in touch over the years and we reconnected recently with this current, well, you're basically like the ideal expert to, to know in this environment. Does your phone ring off the hook these days with old friends? Hey, Don. <laughs> oh, a lot. Of, a lot of people are uh, sort of yeah. They're they're curious that are we going to see another uh, another bull market or is it a bubble? What do you what do you predict? Who's the winners? Who's the losers? Have you seen MP materials? You know that kind of stuff. So, which by the way today is worth more than it was at its peak in 2010. Correct. So maybe I could give your listeners just a little bit of a background about what we're talking about here with Molycorp and MP Materials. All right, go ahead. The floor is yours. So there's a deposit in Rare Earth Mine in California called Mountain Pass. And for many, many years, it was controlled and operated by a company called Molycorp. And Molycorp ultimately ended up being controlled by uh, Chevron Mining. and uh, was shut down as operations in two th- early 2000, basically due to pricing and, and some uh, environmental issues. And uh, it was spun out of Chevron, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan took an interest in it. It listed in, I believe it was July of 2010, once the uh, rare earth market was kind of starting to heat up with the help of uh, Jim Dines, the newsletter writer who pointed it out the world and uh, called it himself the original rare earth bug. So anyway, so Molly Corp, I think it did its IPO at $12, went as low as 11 and within 12 months was trading at around $75 or something to that effect. So that's at the point which Akram probably put on his short. Not exactly, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And ticked the top of it. It also acquired a number of rare earth processing companies, one out of Estonia, and this, and a second one, which was a Toronto-listed company called Neo Materials, which had processing, significant rare earth processing in China. So that was the great big story unwound as rare earth pricing and people's attention span uh, went other directions. Everybody kind of felt that the Chinese would, would be able to put unlimited supplies of rare earths into the market. So by 2015, Molly Corp went into uh, Chapter 11, got reorganized. The downstream processing stuff went back to Neo Materials. Neo Materials subsequently listed as Neo's performance back on Toronto. So that's the downstream side. And the debtor and possession group took control of the Mountain Pass operations and, excuse me, well, uh, physical infrastructure, if you will, wasn't operating at that time, as well as the mine and physical ground. And then relisted themselves as a SPAC just a few short months ago. Wait, what's that uh, word? SPAC. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> and that company is now uh, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol MP. So that's the old Molly Corp, if you will. And that is just the California operations. 
and uh, is now trading at levels higher than the higher Molly Corp was in uh, 2010 or 11. So, which would be what? What is it, Acrobat? The valuations? Four, four billion, five billion, or so. I four, saw a little five and four. a half just now. Right. Okay. And in terms so, of like, what's the revenue the last twelve months? I even I haven't even looked. In in the maybe a hundred million bucks. Okay. If, if so, that, just, just just to rewind a little bit yeah. with you there. So one thing that I don't think that the listeners are aware of, which which you didn't touch on, in 2010 there was a beef between the Japanese and the Chinese. Number one, and that was like I think September, August 2010, something like that. The, the Chinese, can you just can you walk through people what happened there? Sure, no problem. Yeah. So in, like Akram said, in the fall of 2010, what happened was the Japanese arrested a Chinese trawler that was encroaching on its, allegedly encroaching on its fishing territory and hauled the captain and some, some, some of the crewmates into jail. China immediately or within a day or two said, hey, rele- release all these guys in their boat or we'll sh- shut off our shipment of rare earths to Japan. So this, of course, is exactly the kind of story the media liked and played it up as a strategic issue for Japan, which virtually imports all of its rare earth material from China. And uh, that lit a match to the rare earth pricing. And everybody realized that, yes, China does control both the processing and the distribution of rare earths on a global basis, and they can do whatever they want. And not only is Japan exposed, but as is America and Europe and Korea and everybody else that depends on rare earths for that. So that's really lit a match under everybody that had ever looked at rare earth markets and pricing and everything else, knowing it was a strategic material, but hadn't paid much attention to it. Uh, hadn't gone under the hood, so to speak. So to go a little bit further there with you, and we'll, and we'll get into the, the strategic element, but for the listeners to kind of understand, first, rare earths aren't rare. So I think that's the first thing that's, you know, the first thing when you read an investment report that's doing an analysis on it, well, actually, they're not rare, but they're named rare earths. They're, they occur naturally as, you know, what, what would you say, as abundant as, as, as copper or, or nickel? Yeah, tin or copper or something like that in terms of the earth's crust, correct? But they're extremely difficult to what? Well, there, there's, there's two elements to... To, to the answer to that question of, and then they were never called rare because they were rare. They were called rare just as an old chemical term to, to describe them. But the rare earths are, first of all, they're rarely found in economic quantities. They're widely dispersed among, among other minerals. So you don't find, rarely find a, a, a thick vein of rare earth material to, to mine. That just doesn't happen very often. So there's that thing, which is dispersion. So you've got to be very careful about where you can find them versus, say, copper or tin, which can be found much more easily and cheaply. And lastly, the processing of them is tricky and and reasonably expensive compared to those other materials. Okay. And then for the, the context on, on the, the other end of how they're used, which I don't think as many people understand, when you go back to tell the, the Japan-China story, Japan was, I guess, the Chinese's largest export market for the mineral, right? But when you were talking about neo, was it neomaterials earlier? Yeah, it was neomaterials. Yeah, neomaterials. One important thing to, for, for, that people don't seem to focus on with rare earths is the actual magnet metals, which we'll get into for this EV stuff. 
a lot of it is largely produced in China, in Japan, uh, right? It, Japan does a fair bit of processing of, of the magnet materials and produces a fair bit of the magnets, although China still dominates the rare earth magnet world in terms of production. Yeah, so you have two. So General Motors was was the, was the, like two companies, as as I understand, historically speaking, discovered the process of making these very what do you call it uh, high powered magnet materials. Yes. Using what is it neo 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 what neodymium. So you had General Motors and Sumitomo Chemicals in Japan, and the the General Motors patent on it has worked its way down over the years. To a Chinese company, which then was bought by Molycorp, which now is back to being a Chinese company. And actually, I was we'll get to that, we'll get to this later in, in the podcast. But I actually saw that the other owner, which Sumitomo, sold it to Hitachi in Japan, yeah. which has kind of dominated the the downstream actual magnets. Those guys are looking to sell. Sell the company. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading an article as of last month that uh, Hitachi has put Hitachi Metals on, on the block. Yes, that's which, correct. Which, which I found interesting considering the fact that it's it, – could we call it a duopoly on the processing side between those two for magnet metals? Well, the, the processing of, of the strict magnet metals to get to a magnet metals, the, the Hitachi is, is – those two probably have the dominant IP in the marketplace. A lot of processing happens outside of their processing pieces. And uh, is kind of the the step before actually making the magnets themselves, which there's literally hundreds of companies in China doing it. So even though there there's an extraction of of some IP through the value chain there, it's not really those two companies that dominate the processing of the industry. It really comes down to if we look look at what controls the industry, it's really China, which has aggregated six state-owned enterprises that are in the mining area that now control the guts guts of the mining extraction and separation of rare earths inside China. And then they also control, of course, the export marketplace. Everybody else is really at their controls. Now, within all of that, there's a significant amount of competition between those companies internal to China. But China, for example, will not let a rare earth chemical concentrate be exported for somebody else to separate and market those oxides. They just won't let it out of the country. So what everybody's keen to do is how do we manage this value chain without doing anything within the Chinese, under Chinese purview or under their control? We should probably talk a little bit about Linus, Akram, because they're another critical company in this area. So bringing them up, Australia, Linus. So again, going back to 2010, before we get into ESG, EV alternative. The theme at the time, and this beef that erupted between the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, as as you you nicely elaborated it on, revolved around the Chinese dominating a market that what let's call it ninety percent plus uh, at the time. At the, at the time, absolutely, yeah. Which a lot of people don't realize. The United States was, I mean, circa the early nineteen nineties, the dominant producer. And a lot of the reason the, the U.S. exited the market is was environmental. Environmental and costs, because the Chinese had driven down the costs. Do you say, would you say some of it has a lot to do with the fact that the Chinese have a, let's call it a more liberal tolerance for environmental damage? 
Uh, you know, that would be part of it. The, the, the biggest, you know, Molly Corp's, the biggest use of rare earths, say, through the 1990s was really the most common rare earths, which was cerium, and it was used for glass polishing and a number of other things. Oil refining? Oil refining, cracking catalysts. There's a... Which is, which is ironic when you get into this here now, because that's, that's where things can get confusing for people. Yeah. Because the dominant volume demand, let's say circa 2010, was the refiners. Refiners and glass polishing and coloring agents and metallurgy uses. It had started, of course, to be used in magnets, and everybody suspected magnets was going to become the, the big broad use, which it is. So because these rare earths are 16 depending how one looks at it, approximately 16 elements on the periodic table. They're always, when they're found, because they're chemically similar, they're always found together, but they're found in very different proportions. So depending on the usage of the individual components and the markets of those individual components, that changes over time based on technology requirements. So Molycorp, because it, it was a light rare earth producer, heavy on cerium and lanthanum in particular, it didn't have the right economics to to succeed it by 2015. So that was one of the reasons why why it went into the chapter 11, although its long-term outlook is probably quite promising. So Molycorp was the world's biggest producer from a hard rock perspective. It was like like my like a, a, a proper mine and, and further further forward, as is Linus. The Chinese developed their industry on actually a byproduct production in northern China. Iron ore, yeah, it was a rare earth ore was a byproduct of, of mining iron in uh, Baotou, China. And so I actually wanted to ask you about that because I remember shorting frac sand a little bit into maybe to 15 or 16. But, you know, there was, a, there was a mini frac sand mania. I don't know, by the way, if you guys went through that in, in Canada. Yeah, we did. Where they're just, you know, you're scraping it off the ground. And in that case, using it as propent. For, for fracking and entering into supply agreements. But for the Chinese, as a byproduct of their massive steel demand and iron ore being the core metal there, have basically that you can scoop rare earths off the ground, zero cost, right? In the same way, essentially, you could for frac sand if it was naturally occurring on the ground. A little more complicated, but absolutely. They produce a rare earth ore as a byproduct of mining. Versus actual greenfield mine. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, continue. Go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, so the, the, that's how the Chinese got in the business, and their lax environmental regulations allowed them to, to produce these rares relatively cheaply, put both the Americans and the French out of the business or substantially reduce their, their business. That would have been Rome Poulenc, the French chemical company at the time, the Mali Corp. Basically, shuttered, shuttered its production or uh, put it on care and maintenance in the United States around 2001 or 2002. And the Chinese continued to, to dominate the market. Everybody, there was a lot of uh, hand wringing going on in smaller circles and defense circles around this because there was a recognition that many of the rarers, particularly the heavy rarers, which are more rare, would only be produced in China and that could keep the um, the U.S. military uh, scrambling for material to for weapon production at some points in time. So that continues to be a, a global theme and a, and a geopolitical theme that's out there. And so we can say that at the time, at two, like circa 2012, that was the, the interest in the market 
from a strategic standpoint, let's say in the United States, was more actually driven around supply chain resiliency concerns for national defense versus future disruption in electronic vehicle demand down the road. Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly 2000. Yeah, actually, I would say for yeah for the last decade, anyways, that's been the strategic thrust. It took it took a good five years for the government to actually start to to it. Well, it wasn't until uh, two years ago that there was actually any money being put into developing the supply chain in the United States or in North America from from the U.S. government, and it's still very small numbers. So, not not atypically, it's kind of like they're hoping the, the market solves it. In the meantime, they get the defense logistic agency to buy and stockpile certain quantities of material to do that. But China always always plays for the long game, and they've got a, a huge strategic advantage in terms of the number of rare earth deposits they've got and the geology. So they certainly got the world's bulk, of, or excuse me, the largest reserves out there, and they also have a obviously top down management of the whole entire value chain, or as much of it as they can get, which is critical. Which is critical. So what did happen sort of to complete complete that part of the history here was Molycorp was starting up operations 2012 through 2014 or 15, prior to it going into Chapter 11. In the meantime, there was an Australian developer that was bringing a new mine into production. It's com- the company's called Linus, L-Y-N-A-S, trades in Australia. I think it trades on over the counter in the U.S. as well. Linus had a an, uh, a terrific deposit in Western Australia. They do their process, their their mining and upgrading in in Australia, and then ship the concentrate to Malaysia for processing. So that's that's kind of the um, and they got into production. I think initially about 2014, and kind of limped into limping along, if you will, it took them a, long, a while to solidify. But since 2016, they've been the major producer outside of China and continue to be so and have expansion plans as well for that. So so to re- rewind a little bit to, to that time period, uh, for, for most people, wh- one of the more interesting things always in, in the mining space is, you know, whether it's oil or copper or iron ore is when you do have a boom, exploration takes off. There's, you know, the speculative projects, people buy mining interests, right? Like, I, I don't think that there's anyone who's ever invested in stocks that isn't somewhat familiar with, you know, the gold rush, the gold rush terminology comes from, you know, a mining boom. So when you think back to 2010 to 12 and the, to give some, the listeners some context, the, the price of these metals went up five, six, seven X, right? So I think we hit about like $200 or 190 for neodymium. Uh Certainly over a hundred dollars, and it would have gone from five dollars to over a hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, let's call it, you know, ten x, twenty x, five x, very different points in times. But the amount of greenfield projects, like actual, hey, there is when you read about shale, there's more oil underneath X, Y, and Z Colorado than if we could just get it out. You know, that's been going on since the 1960s before we got to this fracking and and the technology that essentially boosted U.S. to the, the front of the race in oil production globally right before oil got canceled. But if you look back at that in the rare earth space, outside of Linus in Australia, has there been, like, I'm not familiar with it. You obviously would know much better. Like, what's happened from a greenfield standpoint? 
why didn't assert it like as as dominant as China is on a production side? What is the challenge? Because I know in discussing Medallion in the past, we've gone over the the challenges on the on the greenfield side. So if you could maybe explain that. Yeah, sure. So the the challenges really are, and there's there's a handful of junior companies trading a couple in North America and at least half a dozen viable ones in Australia that are trading that are represent greenfield mining opportunities. So it's different from what Medallion is, which is processed byproduct material. But these greenfield mining opportunities, their their biggest challenge is, and many of them have gone through it over the first years. First, once you've drilled out your property and proven the resource, is then developing the flow sheet for the processing of it. And that's not simple and not cheap. And typically, say, uh, 25 to $50 million goes into that part of it. And then, then once that done, it is is making sure you can arrange the offtakes so that you can get project financing for those. So the entire rare earth market, market globally on a, at an oxide basis, which is how it's measured, is about $5 billion a year, maybe $7 billion a year today with rare earth prices up the last few months, and uh, controlled by China, dominated by China, and hence the political risk associated with that. So OEMs who are usually real, reluctant to go in far upstream into processing, you need somebody that's willing to take significant debt and equity risk to bring one of these new mines into production. So that's that's typically what happens. Nowadays, I am sure those discussions are happening with those with those particular miners or excuse me, developers. So there's a lot of work been done over the last number of years that hasn't has been very kind of not not in the media attention, but now now they're going to move forward. That said, Akram, just looking at how long it took Linus to get into production and Molycorp or uh, MP materials to restart the Mount Pass mine, well, those are at least three years, probably more like five years plus to get into you know, steady production rates. So there's a crunch here. It was long predicted and, and now um, now everybody's facing it. So that's what you think, when you think about the When you think about the crunch that's coming on now, Let's talk about the demand side of this market, the, the end markets, which I don't think uh, we, we've got into yet. Where where do people find most of these magnet metals today? Because like, we talked about earlier on 2010 and where the volume was going, but the value, the dollar value in the market has always been in the technology side of things, right? Yeah, the val- the val- because the, the, these materials are always found together and you've, they always come out of the ore together. And then they get separated. You end up with quantities of them based on what Mother Nature gives you. The demand side, of course, is all driven by technology and what humans need to use the, the, the metals for. So we talk about magnets today because the two main magnet minerals, which are elements neodymium and praseodymium, are the key ones around the this use for electric magnets, which is driven by electrification. So that's both within cars, but also wind turbines and all of this kind of thing. And the reason is because they can make the motors lighter, significantly lighter, and it's all an efficiency thing. So that's that's why those two materials are, are driven. And then there's a supply crunch because even though uh, we talk about MP materials in California, which which will be able to produce a significant amount of material, or does it actually has been producing a significant amount of material, albeit in ore, and shipping that ore to China for processing. Now what it's going to do is start doing the processing within the United States. So it's not going to be increasing the supply side at all. Exactly. Yeah. So the neodymium, you're going to find about a a kilogram of it 
and a, a Toyota Prius electric motor versus, let's say, a couple grams in your iPhone. Yeah, yeah, even less in your iPhone, yeah. And if we get to 100 million EVs a year, that equals X, Y, and Z demand. <laughs> but we get, the, we, we, get the, we get the rationale. Like starting today, last year, I think the United States imported out of the, I think the MP materials of the what's it called presentation, 2018, $160 million of rare earths imported into the US because the supply chain is for the finished products and the intermediary products in tech is not inside the United States. And against the what? We'll call that a $5 billion market. Yes. Before, before prices rose. So this this would probably be consistent with those, maybe a little bit, maybe $4 billion or so around then. Yeah. And if you look at that against how many EVs were sold, maybe $5 million. Globally? Yeah. Not even, yeah. Yeah, then. So a lot a lot of this, and I'm sure you're following, Shamath Palpatia has been w- w- participated and led this bringing Molly Corp back to life. Let's call it. The resurrection after what was the hedge fund? JH JHL bought this out of bankruptcy in 2017, $20 million. So from $20 million to three years later, it's listed at what is it now? Five billion? Yeah. So call it 250X on paper. What has changed in that window? I mean, I was trying to make the joke there about doing TAM math immediately on on EVs because everyone's doing one pager presentations these days. But when you look at that, that two-year time period, like you said, there's a supply shortage. This always happens in commodity spaces. It does. You underestimate for a while and then boom. And then somehow we go way shortage, price goes vertical, 18 months, two years. And then all of a sudden, it's, we're back to, oh, wait, we overestimated it. Yeah. But in this context, with the commitment... Like I, it's very hard to look today and see a world that's not going to be really committed to electric unless like, I, I don't know the, the, the supply chain as well. Maybe we, we, one day we discover that, you know, there's not enough lithium or there's some sort of toxicity being created from the batteries. I have no idea, but it seems like as of today, the internal combustion engine is, is the clock is ticking on it over the next 15 years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's ticking more loudly now as it relates to, in in part, you know, legislative reasons has provided a lot of wind at the back for Tesla and the EVs. They they really couldn't cut it, have cut it on a energy density program. But there's other good reasons for EVs as well. Obviously, the quietness of it, the less maintenance is required. Whole bunch of other good good reasons to electrify cars. Now that said, cars have been going electric in small pieces for a long time now. So what I mean by that is, if we just think about how much more electronics are in the car, but also how much more motors are in, in cars. So every like a new Mercedes now, even a ICE Mercedes has I think a hundred a hundred different motors in it. You know, because your your seat can go twelve different ways, and your Every little window's got its own little up and down, and and there's windshield wipers on your on your that is um, true. headlights. You've, you've gone away from mechanical, and which yeah, I find and an, even, find annoying if you have to get in cars these days because if something does break down digitally, it's a pain in the ass. Like your key, your key can't start the car. 
Your key can't start the car, yeah. And also, if you turn around and look under the hood, you'll recognize that the water pump and the air conditioner and all of those things that used to be driven off of the drivetrain itself aren't anymore. They're all driven off of electric motors. So that's allowed them to shrink the size of the basic motor a little bit or increase your power one way or the other, and which, which makes a ton of sense. But that's all because they can make, now make small, powerful motors because of NDPR, which is this magnet materials. So this electrification has been happening a long time within the pure ice world. Obviously, Toyota led, led the uh, hybrid world in development of the Prius. And now there's the ice guys, all of them had tremendous amount of development going into hybrids, and, and many of them still do. And hybrid makes a ton of sense, even if you don't go pure EV. Now, and the reason why I'm, I'm not saying, I just don't think hybrid vehicles are going away for a long time and, and it's going to go pure electric is because I, I'm based here in Canada. Much of our country couldn't, it doesn't work around that. It just can't work around that. You, couldn't be, you can't be stuck out somewhere without the ability to pour gasoline into an engine, small or large, and get things going quickly. And if you've got a battery-powered vehicle, that's just not going to work. How do you get 120-volt power out somewhere? You just can't do it easily or effectively. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a longer, longer build-out, and uh, the curve may not happen quite as quick as some of the current projections, but that doesn't mean the trend's not there. And we should definitely speak to what, what the Chinese are doing in the ED market as well, because that plays, plays totally into the political side of it. Anyway, so that, that part, I, if on the, you're, you made a very interesting point there on commodities, you know, it's low price, it's drags along there's reasons they should go up there should be a pinch and then it drags on and on and on and on and on i mean i've seen it a dozen times literally you you will have 10 pe firms as you had with frac sand as we did with the rare earths before as we did with gold as we did with uh, silver right and and this is uranium i never really there's what there was two of them uco uco or the what's the big miner no chemical and plat- platinum too was big from a from actually platinum as a metal for the times that I was in the metal bug phase back in my Mark Mark Faber land tomorrow's gold was was platinum I was actually platinum platinum has done far better than than the other ones over over the time but yeah I mean well this is hundreds of years of mining mania but I mean I can speak to the last twenty years and I, I've seen several cycles here we are talking about the second second rare earth cycle and and how it can, I mean, if I, if I asked you, Don, at the start of the year, that there was going to be a pandemic, there'd be lockdowns, that there would be like 15 trillion in global liquidity provided by the G7 central banks, whatever it is at this, these days, a vaccine debate, uh, uh, the politics in Washington, a contested election with the US president, five people dead in the Capitol building. And I'll tell you that it's a complete, the best environment in history for Investing in rare earths, and by the way, with with all this and this and and China being blamed for the pandemic and supply chain disruptions, the rare earth market didn't get disrupted. But the secular bull story on electrification, while everyone was sitting at home, took off, and this would lead to uh, Molly Corp going from twenty million to five billion because of two arguments. Again, I, I actually don't mind the. The bull market argument on, on, on any secular thing, right? I mean, it, it does, it happens and, and you invest accordingly. But I do find it interesting. And I mean, I've forwarded you that article on the 
whatever was the Council of Foreign Relations, that professor who was working for the U.S. government looking into the rare earth security back in 2014. And he's actually been in the news again recently talking about, let's call it supply chain, like whatever you want to call it, international relations now between the U.S. and China. Yeah. So China wasn't able to squeeze the Japanese. Anyone remember, like nothing really came out of that. Nobody caved. You now had this pandemic. You've had this whole crisis, the you know, the U.S. And, and them back and forth. Nothing really happened there either. And then when you look at Molycorp, I mean, there's, there are people who, who, let's just say, it's beneficial to your bull thesis to add on. Be like, well, I'm buying this because of electrification, but also, by the way, it's, it saves us from China. You know, it's like the added kicker, right? And anytime right. You, structure, you structure a thesis, you add it on. But what I wanted to ask you, and I, and I guess we can take a time out and discuss this for a second, is the demand, like what, when I'm a producer of a commodity or I'm a producer of anything, and I become the market, 90% or 95% or whatever. And that market is, which goes back to that point, which I found interesting on the United States only importing 150 million worth of re, is the market is intermediate products in technology whose supply chain typically exists outside the United States. You know, anything semiconductor, you know, high-tech drones, phones, smartphones, cars, electric motors, et cetera. And when you think about that and you think of where it is, if I'm that big, who am I going to sell to <laughs> if I'm supplying the whole planet, right? So you go, yeah. back to, you go back to a lot of the studies around this in 2014. You know, I took some notes on it last time and then I, I went through it this time. And, you know, you had recycling that came back online in France in, in, in the Rodia plant. You had the largest downstream guys, you know, in Japan determined they can use less magnet metals. The catalytic refining they switched to an alternative, cheaper source. You went through a bunch of stuff. And, and then for, for, for neodymium, which like 30% of it is waste, nobody really cared about that then because, well, the price was low, right? In terms of yeah. intermediate product. So that can like forget the actual recycling of end products in technology, which is more complicated, but using your, your own intermediate product. So when I look at this from the standpoint of the Chinese strategically, and then the cheating, 50,000 tons out of China. I, I think people forget the fact that when the Chinese cut off the Japanese, they banned what? They banned selling the mineral, but they both competing against each other downstream. So there was an argument that this was supportive of China's internal downstream industry because they could continue to sell their magnet metals to Japanese buyers, which is the ultimate goal here. No one's buying this stuff. Well, I mean, you could say someone was buying it, like you could at that point buy buy the mineral to stockpile it. But when you think you about those metal. things- I think you mean the metal, right? The, the metal. Yeah. The, to, the oxide, I mean, the process is what? It's mineral to oxide to metal to magnet, right? Correct. So it typically, yeah, people talk about the oxides or the metals as that, that's what counts as the numbers and what's tr what's traded. The, they wouldn't ship a mineral, a minerals, you know, pre-processed, if you will. So- Okay, exactly. Yeah. So so today when they're, when they're mining with the shutdown, like the phase two not done yet at Mountain Pass, what they're mining out of the ground, they send to what Shengay or whatever, whoever bailed yeah. them out, the Singaporean Sheng, company. And those guys then resell that or they're the supplier intermediary and they sell that to China. Yeah, well, they actually process it themselves, Shanghai. Okay, so, so that's processed. So the minerals is shipped from California to Singapore, processed in Singapore, 
and then shipped to China? It's shipped directly to China, Singapore. There might be some intermediary company in the middle that owns okay, something. Okay, so but... that's just a structure. Okay. So yeah, so when you look at that and you look back at this market, and then you fast forward to today, because we just got a test. The United States, and, and to a degree, let's say the rest of the Western world has been before Donald Trump's issues recently, was, you know, it's called the China virus. Uh, fingers have been pointed. And when you think about that, I mean, what's a what's a legitimate counterstrike or what could legitimately go wrong? Just say, hey, we ran out of it, or hey, the disruption in the supply chain occurred. And I, I did think the author. I don't remember what his name is, a Notre Dame professor, Eugene. He did make the point Goals. that Eugene Golds, he did make the point that like, well, I mean, you've been tested twice. And like, this is an interesting thing when you talk about supply chain resiliency. And if you're an investor and you're talking, well, hey, buy my buy Molly Corp again, MP materials or whatever, because one, you get the EV and two, you know, it helps protect us from being dependent on the communists. Is, is that really a thesis? Because if the Chinese are 90% of the market, that 90% of the market, the end customer there is what? It's like Foxconn and these other companies are tied to big tech and they're tied to production and the Tesla and whoever. You're not going to have a customer. You know, there's that old adage of, you know, I owe you a million dollars. That's my problem. I owe you a billion. That's yours. When you have a market that gets structured in a way, because we're talking about minerals here, not technology. So the refining process and the science and the IP, there's a lot of that element. China has the chain together. But it's not like something they don't know how to do in the West. No, and uh, it, that's an interesting point. I mean, there's a lot of points made there, uh, but one of which is that many of the Chinese companies themselves that are involved in this industry have gone out and made investments in projects outside of China. Hastings, for example, which is an Australian traded developer, has got significant investment from Chinese. Greenland Minerals, which is a huge project in Greenland, once it's Shanghai, the same guy said. That have got a big interest in MP materials and take their feedstock. Have a big interest in Greenland Minerals, another Australian listed listed company. So these these companies, the, Ch the Chinese have been investing in this value chain outside of China significantly as well. And this isn't necessarily all state backed groups that are doing it. The state backed groups are controlled the entire the bulk of the value chain within China. And in fact, it was Chinese policy for them to aggregate under six state owned enterprises. So. It had been a smaller industry, but not really controlled by the government outside of exports. Now it's entirely controlled by the government. And your, your other point being is that, and we're saying 90% was China. I, I would say 80% is today China, and just in terms of where oxides come from because of the Linus as a significant market player as well now. Most of its output going to Japan. But either way, they still control the bulk of that upstream and midstream production is 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 all. And, and even downstream production is still all Chinese. And $160 million went to the United States. I can tell you none of that went into magnets. Virtually all would have been used for oil cracking and polishing and really nothing that we would consider high tech. Or very is, little there, is, there, is there a scenario where we wake up one day and we can't use our iPhone because the, the Communist Party wants to teach America a lesson? You know, I think, I think our technology... Uh, the large technology companies are fully hedged in every which way. And they've been working with Chinese groups, processors in production for how long? I mean, how much does Apple get called out on labor practices in China? Quite a bit. 
Not as much as they used to, but yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, back in the Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs era, I mean, the, you know, people were committing suicide and you would hear a lot more about it, but it seems like our, our narrative here has shifted, right? Yeah. So, I mean, as reality shifts through the narrative, I mean, I think, I think they're, they're in great shape everywhere. The only, the only issues that American tech companies have in, in China is, is all around information control. That's, that's their big exposure. And, and that China's got a, a cookie cutter equivalent of every, every big tech giant that we're all the key tech giants that dominate the West. We've gone from, we don't want our tech products made in Chinese sweatshops in China to we want those jobs to move to back here. <laughs> yeah. And and frankly, it's it's too late. It's yeah, I mean late. I agree I, I agree with you on that too. There's the, from an assembly line standpoint, it's it, you don't have you don't have the volume, the people, the infrastructure to to no. I, I don't see how you replicate like where are you gonna assemble GPUs in the United States? We're gonna fill a place with several thousand people manually doing it. Yeah. Every new plant everywhere is going to be all is going to be mostly robotics anyway. So the Chinese have figured out that they, they they don't have much of a that's the direction they're even going. So it's not like people are moving from the the agrarian villages into Shenzhen for manufacturing jobs today. That so let's play devil's advocate then. Let's say the Chinese come more under scrutiny from an environmental standpoint, and that drives the cost up in China, like if you got, you know, these inner Mongolia wastewater lakes for the offtake from Chinese rare earth processing, let's say that changes. Does that drive up the cost there? Does that, what if they get political ESG wise, does that constrain supply? And does that actually provide more of a bull narrative than the Chinese are just going to purposefully try to screw a market, which, you know, they're the leader in? Yeah, so they're, they're the costs that we've seen recently. Well, first of all, they, they are doing more environmentally. There has been a cleanup of this industry within China, and that's one of the reasons probably the costs have moved up somewhat. That said, they're still going to be the low-cost producers. Okay. The constraints are coming anyways, and that, and nothing's going to stop it. Even even a big market in, say, the pure EV market doesn't take off as quickly as as is projected by some of the bulls. The hybrid market is. so. That consumes a significant amount more of more of the NDPR as well because it's got the big electric motor. It's got a significant size electric motor in it. So if it's one new kilogram of NDPR for a motor in uh, a Bolt or a Tesla or whatever, it's a half a kilogram in a in a hybrid vehicle, or three quarters of a kilogram in a hybrid vehicle. So look, electrification's coming. The trend towards electrification isn't slowing down. It's just a question of when, when does the big demand piece kick in. So we're seeing that all that today. And that's that's why the prices have responded. China, what it, it, it its long game was in, in this space can be summarized by their made in 2025 project where they want everything, they want to be the world's uh, tool shop for everything. And EVs is one of those areas. So that's why this rare is being so important. You're going to see a significant amount of EVs being exported to the emerging markets in Asia, right? I don't know if you saw, but in, there's now $5,000 EV in China. Yeah. So they're looking to dominate that market. That's they're from a production standpoint and from an end demand standpoint for themselves. I would assume that even if, if let's just say China was in, in, you know, in this bizarre world, a US ally, 
you would be looking at them from the standpoint as that's going to be the biggest market for electronic vehicles, no matter what happens. Yes. And as a re-exporter and as a market where they look to have a leadership position, like the Japanese, let's say in the 80s. Yeah. Absolutely would you say that's, is, would you, is that, would you, I mean, feel free to tell me I'm an idiot. No, no, no. Look, the Chinese are, are, are very happy to, to be making and selling cars to the middle class and later even downscale from that. And they're happy and they're fine for Mercedes to be making and delivering vehicles in China as well. So they know they know they know the high end market. They've got no hope in in the, in the short term, but they they've done a lot of co-opting of technology and and of production. So even if they, so, they've got their own internal industries that are 100 percent owned and or controlled, and then they're happy for guys like Tesla to put their plants into China, and all of the all of the majors have plants in China. So 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 when we look at this scenario today, where Mountain Pass is shipping to China its production. Right. Yeah. We could yeah. envision a scenario on end market demand where, because it's so robust, and so, say the production on the end stream of the value chain is concentrated in Asia still, we're investing here in the United States to ship it to China, which will then re-export to the rest of the world. So instead of shipping ore to China for full processing, they may they may say ship separated oxides to China for somewhat less than full processing. So they just take something out of the value chain and send it over to China. If let's say in five years, the annual market for EVs way surpasses current expectations. The current expectations are like 50, 60 million a year by 2035. Theoretically, that could get, if you believe the automotive market doesn't change and we can get into the whole concept of autonomy, and the car continues to be something that an individual is expressing himself by driving versus a box that takes you around as a, as a carrier. If that continues to be the case, and we were to say that the car market looks like the current car market, but it's electrified in terms of units, and that market grows also because, well, emerging market wealth is growing, particularly in like like the smartphone, right? You don't talk about or e-commerce, you know, in China, how you skip a step if you have the infrastructure. You, you like you didn't start with step A, you went straight to BC as, as they did with the telcos and in, in mobile and in EM. So when you think about that, and you think about demand really potentially going through a period of exceeding supply, do you think that the economics of something like this? Because I mean, this is a podcast for people who are investing. How would you deploy capital around that? Will there be a short, do you think there'll be a surprise in that the estimates for 2035, 57 million EVs a year from 7 million or 8 million or whatever it was a year ago is wrong to the upside or the downside? Uh, you know, if you count hybrid within that, it's probably fine because in my mind, the real balance, there's there's two dynamics at play. One is going to be how quick does pure EV accelerate versus hybrid because to reach the like early early adopters are fine with pure with the pure EVs but there's no pure EV infrastructure out there that's really effective I'm a middle-aged guy and my middle-aged friends that have bought Teslas they always admit all of the issues are around long-term driving issues around it superchargers lack of dealerships for service uh, there's a lot of a lot of issues that I think is going to face all of them for going pure EV and the 
the auto industry has invested a huge amount in hybrid and hybrid platforms. So I think the Volkswagen ID3, ID4 is going to do phenomenally well. And I think others are going to do well as well. I just think that the hybrid market is going to be bigger than probably people assume. But that's it's, it's starting to sound like a Tesla short thesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they, they've Tesla's had the the fact that they're based they they were a valley firm in the, in whatever way we want to describe it, and are happy to take valley metrics off of it. Have their their customers be also their shareholders and their biggest cheerleaders it hasn't done anything to hurt them. And clearly, Elon is a um, a connected guy. He's figured out what he needs to do to 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 push it out there. He's definitely navigated a, a, a difficult landscape that would have landed other people in court endlessly with their hands tied. Yeah. So you know, you and I don't know if the new administration is going to do anything different, but that doesn't mean the markets can't change on him as well. And um, I don't I don't think the market can sustain Tesla, Neo, and you know. Uh, Fisker and half a dozen others that are now, you know, Proterra, electronic vehicle trucks, XL, electrification of fleets. There's a lot going on out there. There is. There's probably what, maybe 40, 50 EV plays now. I mean, that's, we can get into that. That's an interesting thing about this market, which is kind of separate from, from rare earths because you, you being someone who's been in the mining space ha- have dealt with the type of investors who invest in, you know, startups, on concept, greenfield. Yeah, projects, yeah. Right now, the public equity markets are, are in a greenfield phase. I mean, I, I, I have this conversation with, with some friends all the time. They're like, the valuation of this is crazy. And I'd be like, well, I mean, you actually have invested in private companies. And when you do a round and, and do this, and we joke about like, how did you come up with the valuation, pre-revenue or pre-anything? And it's the team, so-and-so invested in this. And he was the guy who invested in that beforehand. This guy you know, came from this company. This guy is a successful fund manager from this, and he's always made money. And this CFO was brought in from that company. And you put together something on paper Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is sellable and resumes. And that's, you go raise, you you go raise capital and you go to work, right? And you get, you get a multiple uh, from the start on the people. You're not getting a multiple on revenue. Which is, I mean, we, we, we joke about it when the companies are, you know, slide decks at 50 billion and there are slide decks now at 50 billion. I don't know if you looked at this quantum scape, the solid state energy batteries, it's been. Briefly. Yeah. So like that's, yeah. that was one that, that, that hit there. Obviously for all, for all the Tesla bearish chat, Neo was effectively bankrupt in like January, February, pre-COVID. <laughs> that was like, that was the debate around it. Like when was it going to shut down? It's now, you know, it's like a Cisco. Yes. And I mean, it, it's bigger than most software companies. And, you know, you're a guy with a software background. You've seen what's been going on in that space. I have. This is why this era is a lot more uh, 1999 than it is any other. Oh, yeah, w- without a doubt, because a lot of people forget that in 99, I mean, like, and that's where I kind of got my feet wet, but seeing it on, on one end, that's how you invested. And look, it will work for some of these companies. But at the same time, what happens when you have, you know, 50 startups that have cash to be able to pay people to try something out? They all compete against each other. I mean, one of the, one of the things I, I actually learned a lot about post-99 was when I was investing in the chip space a lot. And I would always see that there's just like there was a ton of little small chip startups, specialty chip companies. And because there were so many of them, 
anytime someone had something good going and something, you're, the period you had a lead was almost nothing. The dry period is really nice. Like, like you just described, Molly Corp got bought out of bankruptcy for 20 million. And, you're, and we're discussing rare earth greenfield projects that are going to cost 30, 50 million dollars in several years. And it's three years later, and Molly Corp is relisted again, and, and it's trading at $5 billion and being celebrated as one of the best investments from uh, multiples on, on invested, invested capital. So, I mean, when, when you look at it from that standpoint, you can say that there is a frenzy, but is that actually something that works even better into the supply chain of the commodity producer? I mean, is, are you a person today who's like, look, we're selling picks and shovels to like, if you think about, if you think about what frac sand was, it, well, we're propent. <laughs> what, what more, like what was more, the only different, only problem they had was that wasn't really a supply constraint <laughs> at all. But right. This, this is supply constraint. Yeah. Not, yeah, we'll, yeah. Just, we'll keep pumping propent in here. We'll keep pumping it up. And there were many dynamics that kept the fracking boom going, still keep it going today. Like production in the United States, people don't understand. A lot of it has to do with interest rates and the way these the debt service is structured and, and the refinancings that's gone on. And the, the leading natural gas producer, the former CEO of the leading natural gas producer of the United States was at a conference maybe last year. And he, and he described the the rare, the, the, what do you call it? The fracking mania as the single worst investment cycle for anybody who participated in fracking, despite the technological evolution. And I have a friend who was a fracking, let's call it bear, who was like, look, this was always common sense from the, the, the start. If I make a technological breakthrough uh, to extract a commodity, what happens to my business? I don't make money because the price of the commodity falls unless I somehow control it. But is there a counter here where at the same time, you say, well, okay, this is not the same thing because you look at what's going on on the EV side of things and you say, there's going to be, there's so much cheap money. Everyone's going to take the crack at their own electric vehicle. They're, they're going to flood the market. In the process of doing that, they all will have demand for the same thing, which is, yeah. do I buy Linus and Molycorp here? I'd say buy Linus for sure. Just, Molycorp is just- obviously harder. Linus is, is, might be harder for U.S. investors to buy, but it's it's a much better risk reward ratio at this time. They've they've gone through all of their startup issues. They're already a big big provider, and they're going to be able to now with using their own capital do their own expansion. So in terms of the, it's not a big cap stock, but I don't know two and a half billion dollars today. It's still a small cap or mid cap stock. That that's probably the best leverage in the market out there for somebody that wants to buy somebody that's, that's already in production. MP, MP materials, a lot of it's been based on who's put their money into it. So, and look what happened to the old Molly Corp. And of course, the US is a big investing audience. So, a lot of people can get behind a stock that's got gold dust sprinkled all over it, right? Yeah, exactly you simplify it. it, it's great. Yeah. So, I'm not saying you can't make more money on MP than you can on Linus. I'm just saying, as looking at putting on my pure value hat, US investors will wake up and start to buy Linus, and or international investors will take a look at what's gone on to MP and go, well, there's a pair trader, however they want to play it. I don't know. But the, the, the thesis on the rare earths and the magnet material, irrespective of whether we go more hybrid versus electric, pure electric, faster at whatever rate, or we go and look at whether the adoption of EVs happens 
happens quicker because of, but, but with less volume because of uh, full self-driving and, and uh, those sorts of things. Would you compare this to the internet in 2000, the area that were, where there was the most overinvestment was in long-haul telco infrastructure, fiber, <laughs> bandwidth, yeah. et cetera? Yeah. So would you compare the, what's happening now with a ton of capital going into electronic vehicle startups as a similar example? Like the one place you didn't make money was in the telcos, but it turned out yeah. to be great for Netflix. It turned out to be great for Amazon. It turned out to be great for software companies. It turned out to be great for a lot of things. So if you look at that, it turned out to be fantastic for Apple, right? So if you look at the, the EV market, you see something similar from an investment standpoint. Would you say that we have something going on here where because so much overinvestment has gone in, you actually will see electrification demand move up the curve much faster than expected? Well, certainly going to drive down the costs Cost of production. I mean, what I see is overcapitalization in the entire automobile industry. You know, the one thing that hasn't still hasn't weighed into it is, and, may, and maybe, maybe we think they can't weigh into it, which is the traditional makers, you know, led by VW, which is doing lights out in in Europe in terms of pure EV. Has VW turned the corner, and are they the the guys to be concerned about? They might just pick and choose and buy whatever little EV startups they want that have got IP or whatever. The overinvestment, what's it actually going into that could be useful for somebody, I guess, would my question be? Is it IP? Is it plants? I, I don't know. It doesn't. Or is it Does party? this end with an AOL Time Warner scenario of Tesla buying a car company? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I still find it amusing that, that Tim Cook wouldn't, wouldn't take his call. I mean, it, it, Elon should be doing whatever he can buy Hyundai or Renault or somebody, but does that pop his own bubble if he does it? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it's interesting when you think of Cook's background as what? He's supply chain logistics master. I mean, that is why he's in his job. So his ability to do what he what he does and to get Apple to where it was and why why Jobs put him where he is, was navigating everything that is Asia, right? Yeah. And and putting it together better than anybody else can, because he knows how to work that. So it wouldn't surprise me that someone like that, with, with what was going on then, would have a very hard time looking at someone who's been more of a branding, which is ironic because what did Steve Jobs successfully do with Apple is the branding. But what turned it into the machine that it is today and killed everybody else was obviously the back end, which they keep getting better at. Yes. Yeah, back-end and device integration. And they own as much of that as they wanted to. Now they're even moving farther upstream into the chips, right? They're doing everything. They're a vertical integration machine. We get why they would do that. And, and look, Tesla, Tesla's been going that route in, in some respect on the autonomy side. But I mean, if he does buy, you know, if he was to buy a, a Daimler or, or, or a VW, I, I don't know how that, how, how that would sit, but maybe it would say something along those lines. As far as the rest of them, yeah, maybe it does end. Like, I mean, people forget that Elon's first company was was sold to CompUSA. So it was, uh, you know, like uh, the Yellow Pages online. And <laughs> that thing was declared written down to zero in, in two years. And that's what got him his start to put the money he had for PayPal. So when you do think about these things, yeah, I guess you could say that the 
there could be a wave of consolidation. But like you do have a good point when I look at some of the, I don't know what what is the IP in electrification. Is there going to be some sort of breakthrough on battery tech? Like when I don't know if you got to listen to our a uh, couple of the podcasts we did on Tesla. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, so we got into a, bit, a little bit around the that what's always kept me away from Tesla, and we were, were actually talking about funny fact the SPACs and everything. T- Tesla was was initially invested in by uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, UAE, basically 2009, when when Daimler got essentially a bailout and financial crisis. Part of part of that was they took a 14% stake in Tesla, which was split between I think the electric power company and between a bar, which I mean I think you may remember. Mm-hmm. Have brought up several times in the past. Then between you and me, which when you think about the the bailout that occurred then for financial crisis for for Dubai was like ten billion dollars, and like fourteen percent of Tesla today is what twelve times that. So when you rewind the picture to Tesla, I've come across it from almost day one. We worked on the IPO at the investment bank I was at, and. It was entertaining. But one thing that I never really spent much time on was the battery technology. Yeah. So for all the debates and knowing Tesla short sellers from, from day one, I just, you know, I never dived into it. It seemed like something out, outside of my potential area of expertise. And it never interested me enough to be like, go crack this nut. I figured a lot of other people had spent enough time to figure it out. When the narrative shifted to software and to autonomous driving and a lot of the stuff that it is now again today. You don't really hear people saying that X, Y, and Z company has technology. Like like you just said, if I could drive cross-country in an electronic vehicle company on one charge, you're talking about some sort of breakthrough. Or if your fill-up was five minutes instead of 50 minutes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. So like when you go back to why we started, I mean, like I came across the history lesson on, on the electric vehicle company of the 1900s. <laughs> you sit there and you think, oh my God. I mean, like we're just going through this again. We started here and we went like what? We went to the internal combustion engine because what? Who drove that back then? Who was the world's biggest oil producer? <laughs> yeah, well, there were, they they also had some wind at their back. Their energy density was a bigger deal, but it was all about who built the infrastructure, right? And who had the infrastructure or could build the infrastructure. I mean, I go back. One of the companies out of this town in the in the late nineties was Ballard Energy because everything was going to be a, hyd- a hydrogen power car. Ballard Power, yeah, I remember that Ballard one. Ballard Power, yeah, and they're still around. There was a fuel cell. There was a there was a ton that we went through in that last cycle on on yeah. alternative. Well, and they came electric, back. Electric was viewed as not so exciting. Forever Milton brought back that theme with Nicola, right? Well, I mean, if you push a car down a hill, eventually it will establish momentum. <laughs> so the theme on electrification is intact. The theme on NDPR is intact because it's it's probably the only real gating commodity within the EV. And so people are looking for alternatives for the, for the energy. That said, they're getting more and more efficient as, as they do it. So the, the, the pricing isn't, the availability isn't there, but it's not going to stop the EV revolution. People are figuring out ways of processing byproducts like us and other people have different, different approaches. And eventually there'll be recycling of, of both the batteries and the, uh, and the magnets as well. Do you think you'll see progress in terms of, recycling electronic consumer good waste to to get rare earths or is that just not worth it right now probably not worth it 
and probably won't be worth it. Better to go after the gold and the silver likely. And by the way, before we get into uh, the one last thing in the markets, but I did want you to to give a little bit of a context uh, on Medallion. So sure. you talked about the where what Medallion does and where it sits in the chain. Yeah. So what we do is we've developed a process for extracting rare earths from byproduct mineral called monazite, and it's available from heavy mineral, mineral sands miners. So these are companies that mine beaches around the world predominantly in uh, Africa, Southern Africa, and Australia. India as well does it. They mine for the titanium and zircon. But as they do that, they uh, also upgrade and process monazite, which is a rare earth phosphate mineral, slightly radioactive with thorium and uranium in it, that we've got a proprietary process on extracting rare earths from it in a clean, sustainable fashion, and uh, are partnering with mineral sands companies and others to bring, to bring rare earths to market in that fashion. So the go-to-market on that is, how does that work? So right now, we're shortly going to be publishing our economic study on a plant in North America for processing the monazite. And we would, our, our plant would likely cost in the sort of numbers that you threw thrown out before, sort of the 25 to $50 million range. The number for bringing a mine to production is closer to $500 million. million. We'd import the material. We're looking at, in North America, the Preferred location would be Texas. It's got the chemicals and labor and stuff. We'd import the sand, monazite sand, which would basically runs about 60% rare earths through the extraction process. And out of that would come a rare earth chemical concentrate, which we would then, with a partner, separate into the individual oxides, which are the marketable commodities. The emphasis on the neodymium presidium, because that would represent about 90, 85 to 90% of the revenue from that plant. Okay, so as a as an investor, if you know playing devil's advocate again, where's the advantage to this process over the traditional process? Are we looking purely economical? Or are we looking at some sort of environmental? Like why why am I going to look at monas? Is it yeah, abundance of it, easier it, access? It's it's economic. It's a cheaper process because of the way we use energy and recycle it. It's also clean, and any new plant you want to put in is clean. There's a significant amount of material that's available because there's a radioactive footprint to it. It needs to be managed carefully and disposed of. So there's some secret sauce in getting all of that part of it done. So for all of those reasons, and uh, doesn't require, you know, the time and the, the ha- it's more of an IP and processing play than it is a uh, bring a new mine into production type of play, which has its own challenges. I believe that some new mines will come into production over the next few years, but those are, you know, big jobs. The last cycle, only one new mine came into production and that was Linus. Mollycorp was a, was a brownfield operation. So is this like a licensing type of IP technology to a partner or does this get done in a full out refining facility? We're having discussions on both sides. Okay. Okay. I'll leave it. I'll leave, I'll leave it at there on that. You can keep me posted. Sure. All right, guys. Well, I mean, uh, but anything else on your mind you want to discuss? Well, we did. Uh, what else was there here? Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about quickly, which maybe like I think listeners, since you know MP is publicly traded, I was reading in their their S one that in the last twelve months they did three point two x the peak volume of the pre, of the predecessor, and yeah. they they cited that you know l- lower temperature, different like it's some sort of process improvements that really upped their production capability. Yeah, so their their production would be production of an ore, 
and they were never constrained by production of the ore. So all they're doing right now is they're, they're mining a 10% grade deposit and they're upgrading that to 10% rare earth contained and they're upgrading that to say 60% through their physical processing, you know, sorting and magnets and different things that do to do that. And then they're shipping that ore rock in effect off to China for processing. It, what were their, their constraint previously was actually on the chemical processing. That's the part, that's the phase two part. So we yeah, got they to bl- see. They blamed the previous owners for taking a processing approach, wasting $300 million. They call it like the, the crack house. It's not even used supposedly. Crack leech, yeah. <laughs> Where they crack, crack the mineral, yeah. Yeah, so like they, they make fun of that. It's, you know, abandoned type of failure. Where they they plowed all that money into it and nothing came out on the on on the other end. The the other question I had, which was let's rewind a second from an investing standpoint, was why would why would Hitachi be looking to sell Hitachi metals? What you know, what's like I would think for investors listening to this and evaluating on on one end, CNBC bringing people on who are telling you that the sky is the limit for for rare earths, picks and shovels, to the Japanese who've been in the market for 30 years being like, huh, now, now's a good time to sell. Now, not not on the mineral side, but on the metal side. Yeah, on on there isn't, you know, they do have some patents on that, but there's not a lot of margins in that business or traditionally hasn't been a lot of margins in that business. Likely for them, it's just a strategic area they don't want to be involved in. That is, is my, and it's an appropriate time. Too much to sell. headache? Yeah, you know, it's probably something that they they went to the board with. Should we or should we not be in this business? What does it all involve? What are the politics? Is it core? Here's the three core things we do, and probably didn't make the cut. Is my guess. And there's a, and there's a market out there for it. Somebody's going to buy, it, no doubt. Okay. And then as far as uh, well, Daniel, anything you want to ask him directly before before we move? The question I you sort of got to this at a couple different points, but I guess. A lot of our listeners are Tesla bulls or following Tesla. And I think of people, when we think about this whole value chain, and you talked a lot about China's, even in China, the environmental regulations are getting tighter. I guess maybe just underlining, like, what are the environmental puts and takes of this? Because the whole process, you know, mining is always going to, or this is a very crass statement, but mining seems like it's always going to be kind of a rough process but like how does that when we're talking about the environmental if you could just spell that out a little bit more like what are the costs here i i i think that's that was the one thing that's kind of been in my head this time so by by cost here you mean for mp materials for processing california versus china so yeah, just in general the process the uh, the processing of these rare earths the whole pro- yeah because it's like you put a, you put them in a nitric oxide uh, acid bath. I mean, what, walk him through where the toxicity yeah, yeah. comes from. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, it, honestly. So there's there's if it was a traditional mine that it would go from you know sc- scooping it out of the pit in in trucks, trucking it to to the crack house, if you will, where you you basically and end up before that. First of all, upgrading the material, so you you, don't, you want to put obviously the most high grade material into your plant because otherwise you're wasting acid. So there's some physical processing beneficiation, they call it, which is all physical. So, you know, there's there's nothing environmental about that except, you know, obviously dust and waste rock that has to be put somewhere. But 
It's not chemical pollution or anything like that. And then it goes into the chemical phase of it or the extraction phase of it or hydromet phase of it, what all those would be appropriate. And that's where all the chemicals go in, the acids go in, bases go in, gets mixed up and, and goes through there. At the end of it, then it, it gets pushed out as a powder. In between there, it's really about the energy consumption and reuse, the chemical consumption and reuse, and what happens to those chemicals after they're done. So in China, in Baotou, especially where they're dealing with huge volumes, they've been happy to ship those out into great big acid-filled drainage ponds, which they haven't cleaned up and they've been around there for, for 30, 40 years. In a mining project today, one isn't allowed to do that. One has to follow different environmental paths to make sure that reagents are recycled and things are disposed of properly, not dumped into streams and rivers. But there's lots of ways. The, the time to make it clean is at, at the front end of it. And traditionally, the Chinese haven't paid that much attention to it. They're now paying more attention to it. But any project that happens in any of the Western worlds is, is going to, to do. And those costs, costs, of course, all need to be all need to be factored in. The big deal with the, if we look at the electric vehicle market though, is how are we going to recycle those batteries? Because there's a lot of nasty stuff inside those batteries. And uh, that one's yet to be licked. Is that going to be fall at the consumer's problem? Is that going to fall to the producer? How are we going to, how are we going to- Is that, is that why he started SpaceX? Is that, was it just a cover to be able to launch <laughs> reusable rockets to launch batteries into space? I don't know why he started SpaceX. Actually, I mean it's it's not it's, it's not it's not the craziest theory. If, it, if the getting rid of the batteries off planet Earth, sending them to Mars is the idea. Well, you know, we we store nuclear waste in barrels above ground. I still haven't figured that one out, have we? Nope. I mean, I've seen hypotheticals around what would go wrong. One, you could launch it; it blows up, and we have radioactive waste in the atmosphere. There's the other where it gets into space and actually you wouldn't break orbit and they would be coming back as projectiles to earth you're talking about ba- you're not talking batteries I'm talking about nuclear waste nuclear waste oh yeah i'm yeah. saying like I, i've read I, i've read hypos around that which is why you just triggered that in my head where if if electric batteries disposing of them is going to be no, a problem no, down no. the road you, you, you put them you put them in the desert and put a put a cover over it until they figure bury, out how to recycle that's what you do yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep geological storage is the answer to the, the nuclear waste issue. We've got the Canadian Shield that's been solid rock for 1.5 billion years, and they still couldn't get permission to store a few hundred barrels of nuclear waste in that. Why is that? Is that in opposition. Politics? Yeah. Politics, opposition. I mean, we, you know, if you just measure the, the, the environmental footprint of a Tesla versus uh, an ICE over its lifetime actually hasn't been done properly, right? I'm not quite sure how it would turn out, but everybody likes to feel that like they're saving the planet. So that's all great. It's all great. Um, but as you probably notice, I'm I certainly think uh, that g- given the competition that's coming from the Chinese VW and the uh, and the startups, I think you know Tesla's Tesla's going to have its challenges in front of it. So uh, full disclosure, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is that, a timely that's, disclosure. That, oh, that's hilarious! A rare, a rare Earth guy, short an EV. It's the. I, I would say that that would we call that uh, a pair trade. That's, there you go. <laughs> or or natural hedge, maybe. I mean, it's an interesting take, actually, to think about it, because I mean, on the one end, you're 
if you actually believed it would be supply. I, I was actually looking into, by the way, which we didn't discuss. So I've seen estimates. I don't know where you are on this, but that the at the cost of an EV, the that one to two kilograms that we're talking about of NDPR is 0.5 to 0.8%. Is that right? Of the car cost and maybe up to you know a quarter of the motor cost? Uh, it might be a quarter of the motor. I don't know what the motor cost would be. Like a, a kilogram of neodymium would be you know, $60, $70. And then it goes into a magnet. And you, yeah, so you need, the, dis, you need the, the, the dysprosium, dysprosium, which is like $150, $160. Yeah, but only a few grams of it. So very little. But yeah, it, it represents in terms... So $200. Yeah, maybe $200. Okay. Yeah. So that's an interesting flip trade. Well, I mean, you're shorting it an $800 billion company. I mean, I would hope you haven't been shorting it since it was $40 billion. But No. <laughs> it's you know there's there's always a good time to be short something and there's always a bad time there is and the market usually tells you that and i but i you know i guess i i, I it sort of feels we're at the pet.com phase of the ev hype at this point it's i i'm, I'm we're, we're counting on obviously the volume of the evs being produced and that's what's going to drive things not necessarily prices of ndpr somewhat but it's really going to be a volume business and it's constrained. I brought up uranium earlier just because it's one of those things that's what else is constrained in in let's say electrification other than other than Rees. Elon was mentioning nickel. Nickel nickel is certainly one of them in and finding the right deposits. They need to the sulfate deposits and getting those to market quickly and easily because they're going to be very large deposits. All of them have their own constraints in terms of processing it. So the not really the amount of material. Typically, it's it's processing value chain constraints. Same is true in the in the lithium space. There's no shortage of lithium itself. The one thing that made me very skeptical on on Tesla's latest comments on Battery Day was that that they were going to be extracting lithium from from place, and that's a challenging thing to do. Uh, nobody's done it technically, technically, and they kind of threw it out as a a bit of a sideways thing, like well, you know, we can do it here in Nevada. Well, people in the lithium business don't believe that. So there was, there was, you know, and when you hear one, one thing that's a little bit off, it sort of puts you that there may be some other things that are off. So I'm not the first point. First yeah, point you're not alone there. There's a lot of people who think that. So I mean, that's definitely the case. Anything else on your on your mind, Daniel? I think we like we started this with the uh, the environmental, and then we segued. No, I think that's pretty, yeah, I think that's pretty well. I mean, I, I've been mostly listening. It's, I forget if Akram mentioned this when we were recording or before recording. He sent me a couple things to read to try to do a crash course. And due to other events, I didn't get to it until just before the show today. But it's very interesting. I mean, I think it's it's just always good because it's so easy. It's been so popular maybe for longer, but especially in the last year or two, thematic investing and hit a theme and just play that theme. I mean, that's how it works in that space. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. 
This has been a Short Man Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.